Ladies and gentlemen, we now have President-elect Trump. What are your thoughts on that, Luke? I have a lot of thoughts. Um, I believe the lesser of two evils won. But the lesser of two evils is still evil, so we're going to be in for a real interesting ride. When has a presidential candidate not been evil? Like, when do we when do we say that person was evil? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think Americans are inherently disenchanted with government. We always have been, so we just kind of assume that they're bad. Uh, for example... Think of Michael Corleone's line to Kate at the end of, of The Godfather when she goes, Michael, presidents don't have people killed. And he goes, no, who's sounding ignorant, Kate? Or something well, along those lines. A naive, I think, is the word that's being used. Now who's being naive, Kate? <laughs> uh, I love The Godfather so much. Okay. When has a president not been evil? I would like to think that I don't. Uh, hmm, I don't know. I still really like JFK. I don't think JFK was evil. I think JFK was a poorly formed Catholic, but I'm not convinced that he was evil. Why would you say? So I mean, like he cheated on his wife like hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. Blah blah blah. That doesn't. That doesn't. No, count. I mean that's no that's. He launched the Bay of Pigs and Vietnam. That doesn't count. Uh, mm, I take issues with the Vietnam one, and the Bay of Pigs is complicated. So Vietnam as a war was formally launched under JFK and then continued by Lyndon Baines Johnson grossly and then ended by Richard Nixon. Expanded Nichols. by LBJ. Oh, yeah. Grossly, yeah. grossly, grossly. It could have very well... Man, that's... LBJ is the number one case why when you're in war and you're... Uh, if you're a, a wartime president, which all U.S. presidents are, um, <laughs> because we're always in war, but if you're a wartime president, you don't get to tell the military step-by-step step how to do bombing campaigns because that's what he would do. He'd be in there and be like, okay, we're going to back off bombing now because we don't want to... We don't want to bomb too much after they just, like, annihilated the whole... Yeah, anywho. This has been History with Luke and Gomer. Next week, we tackle the most evil of them all, Woodrow Wilson. Oh, he was so evil. So evil. Hate Woodrow. Yeah. Hate Woodrow. I'm with you. Oh, man, we should hug each other. <laughs> it's like we were made to be friends. Oh, uh, so well, Luke, I feel like, I feel like, I feel, I feel like there's so much to talk about. We got to somehow figure out a, a way to stay on track. So I'm not going to interrupt you. You're, you were telling me. Okay. Go, lesser two evils. Okay, so here's why this is what I, I this is what I want to get to. This is why I think Donald Trump won. When I think of people who support Donald Trump, I think of my good friends out in Idaho. Those of you that are a longtime listener to this podcast know that I spent a good two years of my life out there, and the people in Idaho are when you say salt of the earth, they are that. They are the people that preserve what is good. That who uh, they take a time for. Uh, each of the seasons and they really they're they're just like real honest down to earth good people uh at the school that i was the principal at like i think like 92 percent of all of the families there own their own business that could be a farm that could they were either an an electrician some some sort of opposition where for the most part the male was the sole breadwinner because uh, they had a lot of kids at at, at home, and they really did a believe in uh, 
um, a close, tight-knit family group. And they experience the pain that, that has come along with the recession, with some of the laws and policies enacted by Obama. Like it's genuinely hurt their hurt their pocket their uh, pocketbooks, and I and I, I don't mean in a way where they like you know went from three hundred thousand dollars a year to two hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year. I mean that all of a the sudden they can't give uh, the money they want to give to their kids' child uh, like you know education fund uh, because now their insurance is too high, or. Uh, they can't afford to pay people for overtime work or they, um, you know, have been hurt by certain uh, foreign policies, things like that. So there are people in this country whose lives have been genuinely harmed. Well, uh, I apologize. I use the wrong. I, um, that was the wrong word. Genuinely harmed by economic policies. And this was a fight back. This was saying, no, you can't do this to me. I'm not going to take it lying down. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. They think they're either right-wing bigots or um, poorly uneducated uh, hicks. And that's the farthest thing from the truth. And the fact that people in Hollywood... I mean, this is this is a cliche but this whole idea of you know not wanting an actor to tell you that you're bad because you are a christian or you have conservative values i think people are really tired of hearing about how stupid they are when they are suffering or you know or they're experiencing hardship because of government policies and this was a gigantic like no they kind of put their foot down and said no. And I think that's true for a lot of people across the across the country. And our good friend of the podcast, J.D. Flynn, had a Facebook quote that really hit on this where he says one of the things that the people in this is this is this is while uh, the media was trying to comprehend what was going on. And I am uh, grossly paraphrasing here, but he said that the one thing that, you know, everyone in, in that um in the media right now is not hitting on is that people who went from Trump have different values than you. They don't view the world the same way you do. And that's what I think won Trump the election. It's a matter of culture. This is like, this is a continuation of the culture war to a, in one context, I would, I would say. What do you think about that? I think that uh, it is a, it's not just a culture war, but it's a class war. And I, it very much was, so like our, our friend Greg, who when he evaluated this, took that pretty hard line of this is kind of the last, the last gasp of the, or grasp of the uh, um, white American male as he's being overthrown by the global South coming to coming to America. And so one of the things that, I mean, that narrative is pretty strong because male, whites, cisgendered, heterosexual people tended to vote for Trump, but not exclusively. Um, 
And then you find that, uh, I was reading a Huffington Post piece today that said, all the fault of Trump becoming president lies with white women. Because it was like 53% of white women voted for Trump. A man who talks, brags about sexual assault. And, you know, 47% voted for Hillary. And uh, so she's like, so all we've ever done is hurt our um, women of color and their advancement and all this stuff. And I find that there's a lot of, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to all these different things. But I really do feel like it's the working class counties in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, like all over the Midwest Mm -hmm. that went just straight red. And then these swing states, people forget all the working class people all over there that make up entire counties. Those historically carried Obama that comfortably and they all went to Trump in four years. So why? What was it about that? That's more than just the progressive. Um, the progressive left is just you know saying, "Oh, you, look how racist America is." And look at, now, I don't. I do not like Trump. I did not vote for Trump. I voted for a third party. I would vote for. A, I voted for a third party, knowing that he wouldn't win, because I believe we need a third party. I, I think we need at least four parties, let alone you know a lot more than that. I think that would cause Americans to quit being so bipolar in our politics. But now, let me just say this. Uh, I think it's because the the unions and the trade workers and the factory workers who went and worked instead of going to some liberal arts school for five years on the uh, Greek route, getting hammered drunk and treating college until, you know, junior, senior year as a... Uh, as a consumer good instead of investment in your future. I think a lot of those people who went to work instead, who don't have college degrees, they just assume they're stupid. And that's what really pisses mm-hmm. me off. Something resonated with the previously blue counties that are now solidly red with Trump. And it wasn't his racism, which I do think Trump is racist. It wasn't his sexism. It was his, it was his protectionism. It was his we're gonna put up a, a a trade barrier with China and we're gonna you know yelling about NAFTA and reorganizing NAFTA. You know, got the Canadian um, prime minister all up in a all up in a huff about go. Oh well, we, we support our 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 neighbor. We support our neighbor and we love to sit down and talk about NAFTA with him. A boot, a boot. We love to talk about it. Um, but this this notion. Now I'm not a political wonk, but I just feel like you have these. Very strong tenets of people who are like, we've been voting Democrat for years, and nothing has changed. In fact, the situation of the working class person is plummeting. Entire counties, you know, all the labor that we used to have is now going to China. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and I mean, I think, okay, so I think this is a very uh, nuanced thing that people aren't giving it the proper credit. You know, so so it's the it's because we want to raise the minimum wage without a discussion on how to increase purchasing power. So these, you know, so your average cons, your average construction guy who, you know, well, uh, let's go with honest contractor who, you know, owns his own business. It's just him and a guy or two that, you know, he might be able to hire when he's not getting paid more to do the job that that he's got to 
that he's that he's doing because there's uh, tons of c- competition and he's got to pay more for help and he's got to pay for health insurance now and his premiums just went up and all of this stuff. You're going to be angry. You're going to be really, really angry about that. And that sucks. And then when you add on to the fact that the vast, the fast, sorry, the vast majority of these people are conservative Christians, they feel alienated by a culture that is increasingly secular. And so it's just, I mean, it's, it's really kind of fascinating to, you know, stop, to stop and think about it. And I don't really know if I agree with Greg when he says it's like a white man's last stand. I think there's some truth to that, but I wouldn't paint the entire thing in that broad of a, that, that, uh, broad of a stroke, but he's definitely on to something though with it. Yeah. You know, if you are, if you are anti foreign wars and foreign entanglements and all this stuff, if you're anti blood for oil and, and all the other things that the left typically is, you cannot vote for Hillary. You can't. I mean, you cannot vote for Hillary if that is your main thing is ending U.S. aggression abroad and however you want to define that is your number one issue. You have to vote for Jill for um, for the Green Party. You have to vote for Johnson in the um, Libertarian Party or you have to vote for Trump. And a lot of people are scared. Like Trump, I don't think. I don't think he. I think his main thing is he. He won't govern well because I don't. I don't think he's governed himself well in the debates and a lot of this stuff. I. I think he goes too far. I don't think he understands decorum and modesty and all that stuff, which just is a part of the life of a politician, but um, and a diplomat and ambassador. All that kind of is bound up with each other. But um, Hillary might be able to. Hillary is the uh, the 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 queen of. Uh, I feel like the committee, right? That that defines her, the boring dullness of a committee. But that's also how government works, is through committees. It's boring. <laughs> and the church. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, gosh, where's my booze? You, you want to know what I think is really interesting? I thought about this. That we put a strong man in office for the papacy, and all he wants to do is talk synod this and synod that and collegiality (laughs) of bishops. Oh, hey, that reminds me. Are you going to Orlando in um, July for uh, the synod of all the uh, U.S. bishops? No, why would I? Uh, I, I don't know. Luke, I, 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 gotta, I, I feel like I have to keep reminding you of this. I'm not a bishop. <laughs> no, but each diocese is allowed to bring 15 guests. And they will never bring me. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, simply by the fact that we do this podcast. <laughs> really funny. It's the exact opposite for me. So, um, okay, so this is kind of like, okay, so this is pretty random, but I've been aware of Hillary Clinton since I was in fourth grade when I did my report on William Jefferson Clinton. I thought he was cool because he played the saxophone on Arsenio Hall. And I was like, he should be the president. I'm fat and have big, froey hair. Uh, That was me in fourth grade. And it just dawned on me that she's been around for two thirds of my life. And this is probably, you know, when we'll start seeing a lot less of her. And it just kind of struck me as a, like, this is kind of the end of an era, I think. In a, in a lot of ways, this is 
or I mean, it's it's at least the end of that era in politics of your Bush, your Clintons. It's really the end of, of the 90s. In a weird way, like it's now kind of all finally over with. Yeah, we can put our hemp necklaces away, everyone. You ever have a hemp necklace back in like 97? I never did. I did. It was so cool. It felt so good once it was got all worn in. So, yeah. Remix, I, remix that. Uh, a friend of mine, a.k.a. Spy Girl, made me a hemp necklace with a Blessed Virgin Mary uh, miraculous medal. Wait, who was Spy Girl? It, we don't know, but we always pretend it was Word's ex-girlfriend. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, I, I, really, I really wish I knew who Spy Girl was. Spy Girl, if you're out there and if you are a listener, let us know. You know who you are. Um, uh, she she probably doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you all had nicknames. Okay, um, so we may be a little bit off off track here, but yeah, I I mean, so where do we go from here? Uh, to the to the bar. Not yeah, yeah seriously. We recently picked up a reluctant new sponsor. Surprisingly, their business did not implode after being mentioned on Catching Foxes, so props to them. So they actually have come back for another one. Cherubom, C-H-E-R-U-B-A-L-M, is an all-natural baby skin balm whose flagship product smells like chrism oil. Now people won't try to, to delay their baby's bath time for weeks after baptism, trying to hang on to th- th- that lingering aroma of Chrism. Wake up, people. The rest of that child's body smells terrible after six or seven days, you freaks. It gets even worse as they get older, you freaks. Cherubom's owner, a Catholic husband and wife team with five kiddos, found themselves constantly saying things to each other like, why does Catherine's head smell like pickles? Or, ew, is that Eli or the dog's breath? They decided enough was enough and set out to make their baby smell like baptism again. Several months later, Cherubom was born. Anywho, this week they have kindly set up a special discount for our Catching Foxers listeners. Just go to cherubom.com slash foxes. That's C-H-E-R-U-B-A-L-M dot com slash foxes. Cherubom.com foxes. To find the secret 20% off discount code. Holy crap, 20%, you guys. Do not be cheap asses. It can be used on their website or on Amazon.com through the end of November 2016. Buy Cherubom for yourself, your kids, for one of your buddies, a niece, a nephew, or a godchild. That site is cherubom.com slash foxes for the secret 20% off discount code, and be sure to check them out before November 30th. That's cherubom.com slash foxes. Like, as a, like, what should our approach be? Do we, like, how do we, if, if you're a Democrat who just voted for Hillary, and, and you're a millennial and you really do want to have a um a society where you have gender equality um wage equality you uh lbg lbgtq issues are very important to you and you feel that trump is a massive step backwards for the type of culture you want to have for your country What's your like? What's the best thing for you to do? Not to achieve your goal, but like to try to like make America work. Like, what do you do to make America work again? Well, I mean, here's the deal. Here's the deal. We are looking at this from the perspective of America. 
Not even the president of the United States can can single-handedly affect America. There are some things that they can do, but they can't bring hope and change to our country. They can set it on a trajectory, but they can't even do that alone. This is the thing that I think we constantly lose sight of, Luke. And this is this is my bugaboo. Community groups. No. <laughs> uh, we actually that's that's actually it. But the the notion <laughs> no, that no, no, that's it. you know, the whole thing is think global, work local. Like that's a really cool way to approach a lot of stuff. Like think global, like what is going on in the world today? What is what are the movements, you know, like the human slave traffic, uh, sex slave trafficking and all this stuff. Th- that's it's really big. There's finally like a movement, movement dynamics behind eradicating human trafficking, which will never probably be totally eradicated, but there's a lot as of long as there's a dirt ball. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of like to curb the you know, the the flow of human beings from one part of the world to another part of the world. Looking at you, FIFA. Um the because uh, where they have World Cups, it's like prostitution, like out the wazoo. I know, I know. US men's team plays plays Mexico on Friday. Very excited for for that game. Go on. Dosa Dosa Cero, everyone. Dosa Cero. Go on. But this notion that the notion that uh, that is really crippling me from caring a lot about our presidency. Obviously, I do. But the thing that I think has become a, a wool over our eyes as Americans is we no longer care about the local unless we're that crazy neighbor that's obsessed with House Bill 28 or like, you know, like county resolution. You know, those people that are like obsessed with one issue on the ballot and they lie and they make pay for advertising and all this stuff. And it just like is nuts. They like NPR. I've, yeah. <laughs> well, we like whether you're protesting a church, you know, building its own land or which happened to us uh, or other things like there. There are certain people who are like busybodies and they use local politics to be busybodies. But I mean, like truly caring about the local elections mm-hmm. and what's going on. Uh, and so I was I was listening to this podcast that I love. It's called Exponent. It's like business. I know and you talked to me. Yeah, some I know you like it. Go on. Yeah, but I haven't really talked yes, about it on yeah. the show. But I'm, I'm not going to get... <laughs> I, anyway. I, I'm sorry. I was just kidding. So, True. Go on. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, so this... Uh, and they talk about they talk about a lot of things from a lot of different angles. But one of the things that stood out to me, it's uh, when they're talking about the internet age and newspapers, they said, how could a third-rate newspaper exist in an age where anyone can get the New York Times once they just by clicking a couple things? Like, if the world's best reporting is being done by 30 newspapers in 30 different languages, or whatever different languages that cover the majority of the world, why would you rely on college kid intern producing newspapers? You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, of of course, hundreds of newspapers are going to fold within the first 10 years. Hundreds that had a strong business model based on the classifieds and selling ads. Now all that once you took the, cla- the classifieds went to Craigslist and eBay and all that stuff, and then the ads, you know, all went online. Why would someone read the journalist, a uh, journalist who sucks, compared to Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, blah blah blah, at the New York Times? And I started thinking about that, and this is and th- this combined with a quote, and I- I'm going to ask what you think about this. The quote was essentially about modern modern philanthropy. And the guy talked about how philanthropists care about global problems, systems-level problems, and they ignore with a revulsion charity, what used to be called charity, which is a neighbor helping out their neighbor. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so this this one guy recoined the phrase from philanthropist to fill in localist or something like that. And uh, the the notion is to hyper invest in your locality and not to not to do the Bill Gates. We're going to spread billions of dollars out across the whole world, but we're going to focus hundreds of millions of dollars in just this one city. What could we do? And it's things like that that um, because we don't invest in our own communities, the, the author made this point, or maybe it was another another article along the same lines, where it essentially made the point, we're aware of the earthquake in a foreign country with Richter scale information and all, and we don't know the single mom at the end of our street. And the single mom is hanging on by a thread, and we're sending money to the American Red Cross to spend three out of every five dollars it gets or whatever the horrific number was for the haiti relief and stuff um to go save someone a a world away when we have our neighbor now we are we have a global society so we we do have to think globally and we should help out people globally but the brunt of our work should be local and so that has thrown me back on so many things and forced me to challenge a lot of the assumptions that i've been making lately like for instance, if someone came and offered me a better job, would I move? If it was more money, more everything, would I move? What is my? What do I owe my next door neighbor? Mm. Like, you ever mm-hmm. think about that? What do you owe the people who live on your street? And to me, the answer for this election going forward and the divisiveness, there's new statistics related that um, essentially it's like 47% of Democrats say – uh, Repu- the Republican Party positions scare them. They are afraid of Republican Party positions. And then the polled with the same question, um, it was like 50% of Republicans say they are afraid of Democratic positions. So you're talking about half of a political party is literally afraid of the other political party. And it's not just college-educated versus uneducated. It's not the racist versus and xenophobes versus the cultured multiculturalist pluralists, right? It's it's the fact that everyone is terrified of everyone else, and we're just afraid, and we're allowing that fear to go on. The only thing that can overcome that, it's not going to be staying more informed. In fact, I think that's bullcrap, and I think that's what's contributing to a lot of this, this news consumption stuff. The 24-hour news cycle, I think, is one of the causes of our anxiety, because when there's nothing to report, no one's going to watch your show unless you gin it up with a whole bunch of BS, and so in order to get people, Obama, his next decision is going to ruin America. Oh, my God, on Fox News, it's going to ruin America. And then you have this sustained pitch for 365 days, and you have to invent controversy. So they'll take a quote that's two sentences long, and they'll chop it in less than a sentence, and all of a sudden you have this outrageous comment. you know. And so we're fomenting, we're ignoring the local and we're fomenting division and the global. So my answer is stay local. I think, well, here's – so practically what does that look like? And here's what I would have to say about that is I think we're information junkies. It's not, it's not just news, but it's our Facebook feed. It's our Twitter account. It's the podcast. Please don't stop listening to ours. Uh Think of how much, like, we've got, actually, we got a really great thing from one of our listeners, Nathaniel. So, hey, buddy. 
uh, who, and I, and I haven't had a chance to uh, talk to you about this one part of a podcast that he shared with me, but it um, basically just talked about how we've got the entire world's library in our phone and we don't actually use it. And we're, we're, we're and it, it was a little bit, a little bit, um, it was more complex than that, but we are information junkies. And I think it does kind of detach us from a reality a bit. And if you, if you don't have the ability to really understand and, um, to moderate that, to ask yourself what's really important to me right now, then I do think it's very hard to be able to relate to the people around you. Because if you ask, because if you really ask yourself what's important to me right now, it's the fact that I just that I'm in I'm in a brand new apartment and I don't really I don't really um, I don't really quite yet know uh, um, uh, uh, the neighborhood where I live. And I like to become more familiar with that. I've only really, I've only met the guy, uh, you know, across the hall two, two or three times, and it would just be nice to be able uh, to know more about him when uh, I cross his path. But the the really hard part about that is, if I were to try to reach out to him, my guess is he'd probably be like, "What? What? Why are you talking to me?" Because that's what I would do. You know, because we're just so we're just we are so fractured, yeah, because of the anamotechnia vac vacua. It all goes back to that again. But it's it's right, right, right. So I will say that I think technology is furthering so many brilliant things and so many wonderful things. We're able to like um, I read a report about um, people who have moved away from like Pakistan um, into different countries, like here in the U.S., and everyone has a cell phone. They might not have access to clean drinking water, but they all have a cell phone, um, which is crazy to me, right? But that's that's they would prefer it that way. Uh, obviously, they prefer to have clean drinking water. But the the notion is that now, because of things like WhatsApp, everyone in the extended family is able to stay in contact, mm-hmm. right? But what does it mean for us when we can stay in contact via a text message app with our family and not know the people we live next door? To me... There is a grave poverty. There's a grave poverty in there that is that is a fundamental breakdown of not of society. It's a fundamental breakdown of our ability to have society. Because I, when if I'm all the way, I mean, I want to stay in touch. You know, let's say I move away from my family. So I live ten minutes from my parents, but my brother he lives uh, you know eight hundred miles away in Kansas. If I'm if I'm gonna have meaningful a meaningful life, at the very minimum, I need to call him on the phone. I need to do this stuff. I don't have a relationship with my brother Brian outside of the one time a year he comes, and then the handful of times, very small, where we comment on each other's stuff or on Facebook or something. Or because uh, he's not a you know he's he's in his forties, so he's not as cool and hip as me with the <laughs> internet. That'll be us. But but that but don't you yeah, but then but think about this. Okay, so it's not just the technology. well it, it it is a technology, but technology that's not just electronics. No, the it's machine. yeah, yeah, that and and that's and the machine. Yeah, it's the that anima technica vacuum like whatever it, is I'm sorry. You go ahead. Can I finish? <laughs> can I no, I'm just kidding. But this notion of um you know breaking the man out of 
like to say like the husband and wife don't work like was is not it's it's a different version of the traditional family. It's the nineteen fifties family, not the eighteen fifties family. Because a husband and wife, more often than not, if they were agrarian, they worked the farm together. Mm-hmm. And they might have had different chores, so worked the farm together. Or if they were urban, they worked the home and shop together. Now maybe the woman worked in the home, but the home was right above the shop, and so the husband raised his kids in the workplace and the workplace was also more or less the home well and that existed in that in that in terms of urbanism which is very rare until now that existed in like all over the world i actually and now go ahead. yeah go no, no i i well i was just uh, motherfucker let me just finish this one oh, i thought you were done i sorry. am i am no, no no i am but i'm just saying that that means there was the primacy of the family economy. So obviously we didn't have transportation. We didn't have all the stuff that we do now. And I'm not dogging any of that stuff. But what I'm saying is if you have a car where you can go anywhere and it's easy for you to live an hour away from your parents because you can visit them really whenever you want because you have a car, what ends up you do is you say, well, yeah, but they live an hour away. I'm not going to go visit them every day. And then your kids grow up without the fam- without grandparents being around and without cousins being around the primacy and then there's no family economy kids are just food they're just eaters they're just consumers of what mom and dad or just dad or whatever it is is making the money and so you have this 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 is all a huge shift because kids learned how to be adults by adults now kids are learning how to be adults by their peers Mm -hmm. Right, we segregate them into age-specific grades and all of this stuff, and that's that is part of like the loss of the extended family, the growth of an individualized economy, the lack of the fact that I don't have to give a shit about my next door neighbor if if my boss says, "Hey, you're going to get a promotion, but you got to move across the country to you know the headquarters." Be like, oh, "Promotion? You're going to pay for the move? Sounds great. Net win. I'm out." You know, but we don't think, "Ah, oh, yeah, but my I'm I'm a core member of my youth group. They need me." You know, so if I'm being honest with everyone here, I really hate the fact that I don't live in Arizona or in Phoenix. Yeah. Where all my family is like it. it, I am. I'm at the point right now where every time I leave home, I like I openly wept last time. That's also because I'm a carry and that's what carries do. It's not a carry thing unless one person cries. (laughs) But uh it really, it's getting to the point where it's painful to say goodbye. And I worry about what will happen when Aaron and I have kids because, you know, if you hear stats that it's actually really good for both the kids and the grandparents to to interact with each other on a regular basis. It helps prevent Alzheimer's with a lot with a lot of uh, grandparents. It helps other kids in their own uh, development. And it's weird because we're... If you were to look at world history, we're of the uh, time period where people are starting to learn how to deal with uh, the modern era and its implications on the human person. So it's not just all this really cool, all this like really cool technology that we have, and by that I mean just like. Um, Anything that is not on a, a farm. I mean, like, sorry. I mean, just how fast things have progressed, not just computers, but everything. Uh, there's no handbook for any of this. And we're of the age where we're just now starting to be able to understand and see what its implications are. And I think the, and I think uh, it's not good. Yeah. And it, 
and I agree. It's like we are like kids are so isolated now. Like they're so unbelievably isolated and it's not because of Snapchat. Snapchat is a symptom of that. Now it's also a cause, but it's first a symptom of a culture where they're just on their own and they're not part of a unit at all. Like, you know, as much as uh, we might make fun of homeschool kids because we went to Steubenville and I make fun of you for being homes, homeschooled. The vast majority of homeschooled kids that I know are extremely confident in who they are. And I think part of that reason is they didn't get the shit kicked out of them emotionally in junior high school because they were in a positive environment where they experienced stress. They experienced hardship, but they were engulfed by people who who loved and us, who loved and uh, supported them or and were able to guide them through that time period. If they have a relatively healthy family, if you don't, then it's a, a disaster uh, regardless. So yeah, I mean, honestly, if you want to change this country, change yourself, change your family, work on that. Yeah. And you know, I'm, and I don't mean it in a glib way. I mean it in a, um, because this that can also be a cop out, right? Because when we say like, I'm not saying for people not to care about what's going no, on in the yeah. world. I think we should. But if you want to affect the most change, for the most, I mean, it, it is funny. So Ellen DeGeneres did this whole thing. Uh, so Facebook tells me that <laughs> she did this whole thing of like, you know, we still, you know, like we might be totally separate on these political candidates. But you know, when you get out of the shower and you realize the towels on the other side of the ro- room. You tiptoe across the tile, so you just get one little sp- tiny little spot wet at a time. And she listed off like all these like really funny, quirky things that like everyone does, you know. And uh, you know, like we all still do that. We're all st- we all have more in common than we don't. And th- I wrote an article, um, I think four years ago, called "The Crossover Washington D.C." And my brother actually found it and made his religion class read it and critique it. Um, <laughs> Well, give their thoughts on it. Sorry. Critique and it. my whole point was, yeah, yell at me. <laughs> but my whole point was um, when we look to politics for salvation, that's why you see people. I mean, you see uh, – it's one of the reasons why you see people. I don't want to belittle it entirely. But they are looking to political messiahs, political movements as messiahs, um, political programs and, 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 and movements as messiahs, as saviors, as – things that'll come in and you see these people just in tears over Hillary Clinton losing. And obviously if you're at a rally, you're a Hillary Clinton, but I was, I, I attended multiple Ron Paul rallies and donated large sums of money to his campaign. And I did not cry when he lost. I just thought, yeah, well, the Republicans got it and they screwed him. (laughs) But, uh, and I went on my merry way. It's rigged. But, uh, the whole thing was, I mean, I, I'm not looking for anyone from Washington to be my savior. But the other thing is, because technology allows, and, and other people have said this, and I'm sure people out listening to this, you've heard this a million times, it allows you to enter into the echo chamber where you only hear what you want to hear. And the thing was, people were saying, uh, Democrats were saying, people who were pro-Hillary, people who were anti-Hillary expecting a Hillary landslide like I was, were, were, we were all hearing the same thing over and over again. All these late-night comedians are entirely entirely for Hillary Clinton, have been from day one. 
Democratic Party has been. No one cares that the whole Democratic apparatus conspired against Bernie Sanders to squash him. All of this stuff going on. And then you have, um, then they would say, yeah, we all know the news anchors at MSNBC, CNN, Headline News. They're all they're all Democrats who are chattering among themselves, but it's the science of the pollsters that that'll deliver us from this opinion. And they're all saying Hillary, Hillary, a big win, a little win, but Hillary, a win. And it's like now, now we've revealed even the bias of the scientists, right? The people using advanced statistics in order to cull out the, the perfect, you know, predictive uh, algorithm for our elections that even they were, were just dismissing whole groups of people oh you're stupid and i don't need to focus on you and my biggest my biggest problem with that is the the technology today allows us to block out the local for the sake of those who agree with me and though i might have to be friends with uncle merle on facebook and he writes his crazy stuff i have a guy who goes to my church who will comment only on my stuff when it's political and it is it is the it is one of those things that's like so right wing extremist that I I am forced to look at Snopes and Politifact and all this other stuff just to see like is this really true? And I over and over again they're like no no no. But it's one of those articles that just gets repeated and repeated and repeated and it's not true at all. And he posts I, I went on his webpage or his Facebook page yesterday. He literally had like twenty Facebook posts all in a row, all posted within like three or four hours. Of just the most incredible anti-Obama, anti-Hillary stuff. And then when you mention one bad thing about Trump, it's like, how dare you? She's a monster. He's fine. And to me, it's like, this is all the echo chamber. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that will break me and you out of our echo chamber, because I can just mute or delete or dismiss anyone on Facebook. I'm notorious for putting saying something crazy on Facebook and then inciting a debate and I never chime in because <laughs> I don't I don't I don't need to. I just thought like, hey, here I'm broadcasting this. You leave that to your poor wife. <laughs> yes, she can't she can't say no. I love it. <laughs> so I uh I just wait I just respond by doing another uh waiting two weeks and then writing something else incendiary. But my whole point is this when you get to know your neighbor, you discover that you, even if your neighbor is LGBTQ uh, you're not going. You're you're gonna have. They you want to eat well and you want to exercise and you're worried about how many pounds you're putting on, and you're worried are you raising your kids right? Now you might have a different definition of raising your kids right um, than the gay couple across the street whose main word is tolerance. But you know the funny thing about the gay couple across the street that have adopted six kids from China, they all want their kids to do well in school. Mm-hmm. They don't want them to get bullied. You know, they want them to be artistic as well as scientific. They want their girls to be good in math as well as, you know, just as physical, rough and tumble with the boys or whatever it is. And you start to see all these things. But the only way you can see that is if you see other people as people. And that is, I think, going to – it's only going to get worse. The promise of the hyper-local niche market of the Internet will work. But it will be like, hey, this is hyper-niche. I'm going to join all the people who think exactly like me to join my hyper niche all over the world. And then you'll have tons of that. Well, I, I think what, you, what you're speaking to is a lack of priorities. And sex. Go on. That <laughs> Listen, I don't want your sex for now. Wait until we take the vow. I don't want your sex. Uh, like three of, our, uh, three of our listeners are going to get that. <laughs> and not it, me. Go on. Uh, 
So, okay. So if, if when I speak with youth ministers and I, and I try to walk with them a little bit and just kind of, you know, help them out in, um, their, in their own ministry, it's the first thing that I always ask them. And I think this, that this is true because it's just true. If you are a human being is how is your prayer life, that that's the most important part of your day. You need to get 15 minutes to a half hour in there for that two is your own vote your own vocation are you spending time with your spouse are you be able to spend time with your kids blah 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 then it's your own ministry then it's your own ministry apostolate or whatever you want to uh whatever you choose to call it. And I think the same, um, the same thing applies to how we engage with other world. Do you structure your day based upon being able to spend time in prayer and with your and with your own family? Or is it around? I want to be able to listen to these podcasts. I want to be able to watch these TV shows, watch this game, or like, you know, on now, like now again, it's fine every like every like once in a while. But if but if you are structuring every ever like your um, activities around work or um, around politics or those things, if those things become more important than your own prayer life, then your um, own if you made an idol out of them, that's a problem. And I think we make idols much more easily than we realize. I do, at least. I absolutely do. I make an idol out of sports sometimes. Completely guilty of that. I I will make an idol out of um, having an easy day at work or being safe. And I have to challenge myself on that. Being being safe, being safe as in properly inflating your tires and always wearing your seatbelt, or being safe as in not being risky with work stuff. Um, being uh, as in wanting to be comfortable. Okay. Oh, you know, gotcha. And okay. and sure. like that, if you if you want to get all Ratzinger on this, which I am, uh, he talks about that in the first part, and I think I talked about this before in here uh, in Jesus of Nazareth, where he says if you look at the religions of old they were all soothsayers wanting to preach wanting to preach uh preach like safety like we're going to be okay if we you know plant these crops here if we do this and that we will be fine offer uh, offer like up the up like up the sacrifices and what really makes like moses so uh so uh, um a uh, unique was he said i have encountered God and he's told me how, uh, how uh, to live, how we should live. And I, um, and that's really radical and really, really hard. And I think impossible to do without grace. Yeah. I am thinking of, hmm. so the, Emily Wilson is uh, a Catholic speaker. I'm going to see her this weekend. We're going to uh, an event up in Peoria together. And um, I was just speaking with someone that is just kind of crazy how our, our lives have intertwined. Uh, Emily and I also did a Sumville Youth Conference, or no, a young adult conference here in, in Houston um, in October. So now we're going to go there. And then she, and then I'm doing an event the week later, a week later that she did a couple months ago. And I was talking with a couple or the, some people that ran it, and they said to me, 
Emily said something that was kind of like the tagline of her talk, which is a quote from Mother Teresa, that so shook the people who listened that that a, a youth minister scrapped his like lesson plans for a whole month and rewrote everything just to focus on this issue for a month. And the quote was, find your own Calcutta. Right, because everyone loves to admire, you know, people like Mother Teresa, the those who heroically give themselves to a cause. They love to admire them, but they don't want to follow them. And so Mother Teresa's like these people who will literally fly to Calcutta, <clears throat> stay in a hotel, travel to Mother Teresa via taxi cab, and go spend time with the missionaries of charity, and then spend, you know, two months pretty pretty crazy. And then fly back home and have amazing stories to tell. And Mother Teresa's thing is like, don't do that. Go find your own Calcutta and do what I'm doing there. What I'm doing here, you do there. You know. And for some people, their own Calcutta, yep. it's their family. That's why she also has that great line, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. But so many people have this external focus. I got to go out there. That's the modern turn. When you break down the family economy, you break down the intergenerational bond. Grandparent, parent, and child had to work together. And now that they no longer have to work together, the economy is based on one person or two people earning everything for everyone, and everyone else is just a consumer. And once you start fracturing that, and all of these things that kind of follow, it's like my family is essentially, and this is something that I've been wrestling with parents or adults, talking with adults who are empty nesters. I said, when the day you dropped off your last kid in college, did you have, and my, I stole this from my boss, she, she heard it somewhere, do you have pom-poms or Kleenex? And they're like, what are you talking about? And it's like, did you have Kleenex? Are you so sad to have an empty house? I'm just sad to see your kids. Or are you cheering as they're leaving? Like, finally, we got the last kid out the door. And the scary thing is we've reduced the home to, uh, like, a hotel where these people live in who have strong attachments to each other but not like they used to be, not like we're kind of hardwired for them to be. Mm-hmm. And we treat each other in the house as as just inconvenient or convenient things that make me comfortable. And, yeah, you go. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I was, I was uh, just going to add uh, to that. that And, I yeah, you are absolutely right. And... One of the things that I think where this tends to get lost is there will be like some individuals, um, anti, <clears throat> uh, who will take the attitude of like 18 and a year out. And I actually kind of agree with that. However, one of the things that I would add um, uh, to that, though, is that is that the um, that the. Uh, Home should still be the place where life happens, where people come back to for things, where that's where you're eating every week. And like my auntie's not opposed to that, but uh, um, I think that a lot of people though tend uh, to think that like when you're 18, you're you know out, and that and like that means that so are your roots here, and I don't think that that's a good thing at all. Like I think it's important to like be around your family a lot and to, um, and, uh, uh, t- and to make the home a focal point for, um, like your, like, I mean, in a weird way, which actually my auntie does a, does a, you know, she does a great job of this. Anytime that I go home, we always spend the bulk of our time over when we 
when we get uh, together over at my Aunt D's house. And it's great. I love it. I, I absolutely love it because that's just that's what I feel like life should be like. It's we're not around a TV. We're all just spending time together. And the home should kind of be um, – there's a term I'm, that I'm trying to think of, and I'm drawing a blank. Um, the center point for that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I want to read a couple of quotes, and I want you to tell me what you think. <clears throat> Centrifugal forces are no less evident in the culture of entertainment that saturates so many of our waking hours. Take, for instance, the news, which is often – and when I read this line, I was like, damn – which is often merely entertainment for those with a taste for the grim. With the advent of cable television, news became a 24-7 barrage. Through this medium, we become intimately familiar with strangers in far-flung places. We know the details of the latest earthquake in Indonesia, Richter scale and all, while the single mom down the street remains unknown to us. Our tastes and concerns are tutored to run toward the abstract and the global rather than the concrete and the local. The obvious tragedy is that we can become numbed by the very magnitude of the need and thereby neglect the wounded, the hungry, and the hurting in our midst. In aspiring to love the world, we end up neglecting our neighbor. In neglecting our neighbor, we neglect our neighborhoods as concrete commitment is replaced by abstract awareness. And what is the signpost for abstract awareness than coloring with a quasi-transparent flag or symbol your Facebook profile picture. What do we say? What does everyone say when they do that? You know, I'm standing in solidarity and I'm trying to raise awareness. And to me, when I read that line, I literally copied and pasted and put it in my church bulletin last week. Um, and I've gotten a lot of comments from people who are like, Thank I, I wrote a whole piece called um, What Happened to Community. You can find it on my website, laevangelist.com. It's like no big deal. Uh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. But um, it'll be in the show notes. It's no big deal. Um, <laughs> Buy my book. Right, exactly. But that whole notion of uh, of we are consuming ourselves with these like entertainment, and we know of suffering at a grand scale, but knowing it at a grand scale doesn't make us doesn't make us care more. Mm-hmm. It actually makes us care less because we bec- it becomes a video game or a movie. It. it- uh, it reminds me of that of that one line that's always attributed to Stalin. That is, uh, one death is a tragedy. A million uh, deaths is a are a statistic, or is a, a statistic. Whoever, I'm not sure how you yeah. like you know. And so, just the idea that like yeah, it's it's impossible to comprehend that, which is what which is what like makes it even more horrific when it happens. Uh, but yeah, it all comes. I mean, it really does. In a lot of ways, like the breakdown of culture is the breakdown of of the family. But I think it's been so hijacked by the uh, Republican Party yeah. that what that what they mean by the breakdown of um, of the family is like the white dad with. Uh, Two kids, a dog, and a and a white picket fence. What they mean, I think, for when people say traditional family, they almost mean Don Draper without the adultery. Yeah, right. This dad who went away, like because he's an adult, he wears a suit, he goes away to work, works hard all day, comes home, 
mom's got dinner ready, all this stuff. And that's what the traditional family is. And, you know, I think the left is right to rebel against that. But that was not, I mean, that was just a, that was a fractured way the modern family adapted to the industrialized age, you know? And this is just one form. Well, I would say that's actually how the postmodern family adopted to the po- the postmodern age without like knowing that that's what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, y- you can argue modern postmodern, when did one start and the other one begin till you're blue in the face. Just like I always do with when did the middle ages begin? <laughs> Luke, you want to know when, when they shut down Plato's Academy moving on. <laughs> but the, okay. So here's my other thing that you said that I, I want you, you talked about, um, the home is not really being the center of activity, and I said it's kind of like a hotel. It comes from a similar article, where the, or the same article, where the guy says, in the typical suburban home, there is little regular work. To be sure, there is constant incidental upkeep that any house requires, and dishes must be washed, carpets vacuumed, and the grass needs cut in the summer. But these sporadic jobs, many made, and this line I think is so awesome, made inaccessible to children because they are done with machines. Machines! means that there is very little steady work for children. Children, because they have been denied the satisfaction of being productive members of the family economy, become simply consumers. Parents find themselves frantically striving to fill their child's time with activities. They are driven by a fear of that most ubiquitous complaint of the modern child, I'm bored. And when I I think, like, one of the biggest things that we talk about with our parents today is and this is my running joke and when i say it they're like <laughs> it's so true i say your children's schedules are busier than yours and you're an adult with a car <laughs> like your kid is busier than you are because they're signed up why is your kid taking mandarin chinese you don't speak it. <laughs> like what what are we doing to our children with all this stuff so um yeah i don't know what do you think about that quote um, Did you even listen, or was it too long? Did I lose you? <laughs> I was listening. Did I lose you? I was listening. No, I mean, I uh, movement is really important, and not and not to be busy, just to be busy, but to act with purpose towards something, whether it be, um, you know, like all, like all, um. Ultimately, it, it, it all goes back to God and just uh, and trying to understand and uh, to know him. But like, what is the uh, old, old quote? Like, idle hands are the devil's playground or something. Yeah. Working hands are happy hands. Idle hands are the workshop of the devil. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and like, I don't think that we should all just be like staying like busy all the time. It's very important to like stop and rest. I, th- I think we're actually too much on the go, but it does kind of uh, remind me of this quote. Uh, I'm sorry, this quote of the, of the story that I heard uh, today about like, why do you have to keep? Uh, so we're all, um, I don't know if this really applies or not, but we're all called to be sheep. You know, Christ is the, um, he's a good shepherd. And one of the things with like sheep that's really hard like actual like sheep is they actually can't stay in one spot because they'll just eat they'll just like eat the grass pull 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 up other roots and de and destroy the grass which will kill them in the long run and so that's why you have to keep sheep on the like 
on the move a lot. And if you and if you assume that that Christ he knew that at the time when he talks about being the good shepherd that, that he or he had some idea like like what it meant to be a um, a shepherd in like. It means that we have to move and be active with purpose. And if we're and if we're ordered towards God, what does that actually mean? What is like what does what does that look like? I think that's a conversation worth having. And and, and I think it kind of speaks to what you what that quote there is talking about, which is that um when kids are bored, it's a sign of like somehow they're being alienated, and we have to orient yeah. them back towards God and towards and, and 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 towards each other. And a real practical way to do that is to just be involved with what's going on, helping Dad mow other grass, even if the kid isn't helping at all, which we've talked about before, or just somehow being involved, having small responsibilities. And it's true with teenagers. This is actually absolutely true with uh, uh, teens, having them being involved with, with a thing at the home, not outside of the home, being attached to their brothers and to their um their sisters and and to the extended family and and even their own friends and you know other neighborhood I, I like honestly some of the best times I had in high school was when my friends hung out with my parents I loved that I thought that was great I I absolutely loved that yeah one of the things that we um think about when, that I think about when I reflect on what was my parents home like um, for those of you who don't know, my, my mom was recently diagnosed with, um, bipolar, um, bipolar type two depressive, which means that it, it has all the symptoms of depression, but it's not exactly the same thing as depression and certain antidepressants will actually make it wor- the bipolar state worse. You can actually go into what they call a mixed state where you're both manic and depressive at the same time. And, uh, which is, which is just a horrendous thing that my mom has always had to deal with. And that that she never understood. The doctors weren't understanding because they just were like, "Oh, you're depressed. Here's you know whatever." And um, I can look back at my childhood and certain elements of it. My mom would kill herself for things like birthday parties and Valentine's Day and St. Patrick's Day and all this stuff, where she'd bake cakes like Valentine's Day every year. We had a pink heart shaped cake just for the sake of having it for Valentine's Day. But at the same time, my f- my house was – the interior of our house was never a hub of my friend's activities. Never. Not my room, not my parents' family room. My, my mom would have this thing. And it was, you know, looking back I, for many reasons, but I think one of it was the, you know, this kind of dealing with this depression – always meant she was feeling like overburdened or right near that edge of overburdened, right? And she would say things like, I'm not feeding the neighborhood, you know, whatever. Whereas I had a handful of other friends who were always like, yeah, stay for dinner, just stay for dinner, just stay for dinner. And they would eat weird things we never ate at our house. Did you ever have to do that when you were a little kid? Where mm-hmm. you're like, I'm going to stay here for dinner. And then you're like, oh, my God, what is beef stroganoff in my house? <laughs> you're all sick. <laughs> you're all sick. <laughs> stroganoff. What kind of monster Germans are you? Anywho, Russians, I don't know. 
Um, but so this whole what kind of moths are Germans? All of them? I don't know. What I'm... <laughs> Just kidding. I have some. I have some good friends from Germany. I'm sorry, uh, friends uh, from Germany. Backpedal, backpedal. I, I have a friend who's gay. Um, so they have this. They had this thing where um, my wife's house was the exact opposite. Her parents were like, "Invite your friends over. Come over." Like Shannon's friends would come over even when Shannon wasn't there, mm-hmm. and they would just hang out with the parents. And the thing with that is they built community. So, you know, you have one person um, going through a rough family life, domestic turmoil with her parents and stuff. She looks for stability in a friend's house. And my mother-in-law, and I, I've said this before, my mother-in-law told me that Shannon used to have to be driven around, you know, back when she was like a freshman, sophomore in high school, and, and junior because Shannon's such a young, it was young for a grade. Her mom would have to drive her across town to go hang out with her friends at their friends' houses. Or to have her friends come over there. Their parents would have to drive across. Now, none of them, none of, Shannon's youngest, she has seven kids. Um, the youngest is, is like 16 now. She doesn't really go over people's houses. And no one really comes over her house because they text. And that, that notion of I can just hide from my family in my room. I'm not saying my sister-in-law does it, but her fr- it's very easy to do that. Like I can just go into my room and I'm always in contact with all of my friends and I'm never in contact with my parents. Mm-hmm. And my friends are not in contact with my parents. That's a new, that's strange, that's difficult. And so that, that I feel like there's something, there's something being lost in terms of our political community when young people are teaching young people how to be older people. And older people are just, they're like, wow, I don't have to deal with young people. I don't have to deal with tutoring kids into adulthood this is easier for me and it is it's more comfortable for a parent do you know how long it takes me to mow the lawn by myself my fr- i have a real lawn mower a blade lawn mower not a not a not a gas powered lawn mower it's a human powered lawn mower like homer simpson has and i have that and i mow my front yard with this pleasant chipping clipping noise um it takes me about 30 minutes to mow my front yard when my kids are in the front yard and they want to help mow Right, because they can push one of those things with my help. It takes me at least three times as long to do it, mm-hmm. but I suffer through it. Actually, they they can only last like three strips, and then they're like, "I'm hot and sweaty and gross." Uh, but this is notion of like, if I don't do this with them, it's not like, oh, well, they're never going to know how to push a real lawnmower. It, well, who cares? It's this notion of coming together with daddy, doing a project together, finishing a project that matters to the home. And my biggest thing is we're not seeing that. People aren't doing that. Kids, don't, they're just, they just have activities that are enrichments. And if we don't have that, how does that affect our political economy? I think it affects it in a huge way where I can, I can just be isolated from my dad. And it's my dad's job to cut the lawn or he pays the yep. lawn, landscapers to do it. I don't have to care about my family. And our natural state's going to become isolated too and um, have to feel alienated. And in a world that's hostile towards God, we're going to reach out to other to like other stuff we're going to reach out to either hooking up with strangers because of tinder or we're going to look at a pornography or just going uh to drink you know or just like you know just trying to like or all of the above at the same time yeah yeah seriously you know and i mean it's really like i i honestly think that right now if i um, and I'm tired of talking about church stuff, but oh well. And by church yeah. stuff, I just mean ministry. So I don't want to really go into this at all. But yeah. I am going to say that if I'm in charge of the new event, if 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 it is my responsibility 
to do things for the new evangelization at a parish. One of the things that I'm just going to really talk about, not teach, but just try to like get into the mess of things, kind of like, like with what we're doing here with um, our podcast is to talk about how to live a life and not just those things that we have. So like we look good and we, you know, like feel good, but what's true, what's true, good and beautiful for us. What's going to, what is the just thing to do? Uh, and I, we need to start having those conversations more often. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, this is the problem with this episode. I feel like it's like, what's the response to Trump? What's the response to Hillary? Uh, invite your next door neighbor over for dinner. (laughs) Yeah. You know, but the, 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 but my big thing is what happened to people popping in? Like we need that. That's the type of community. But see, here's the thing. No, I mean, I agree, but that's, we're so far from that being able to be possible. I believe you, but only to a point. I believe you. I, I do believe because our, our now, we have educated ourselves away from that. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And we are so far. But it doesn't. The surprising thing is it doesn't take a lot no. to steer it yeah. back. Yeah. It really doesn't. It doesn't mm-hmm. take a lot. And my so people say, oh, what are some practicals you can give us? Well, the reason why this episode is a little rambly is also because – it's a discussion over instruction. It's not like we prepared a lesson. Yeah. But my... Uh, Fuck the day that we do thing, that. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, really. It's going to hurt. Um, <laughs> Strategy the... my asshole in this, bitch. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> That's not strategy, I, actually. That's I, just called being a, a prepared. Go on. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. The one word that I think stands out to me the most right now, and it's the reason why I'm shifting so many of my ministry type stuff and and um, new evangelization type stuff is the word rooted mm-hmm. a human being needs roots because of his real participation in a real life of community so i was asked to do a video for our parish and we have uh you know me and the youth minister of course the youth minister is always involved faith formation coordinator she's involved our communication director and we're all trying to brainstorm all of this stuff and and so they, you know, our priests have gone to this stewardship conference and all this stuff. And I, I'm excited with the language that he comes home with. You know, I always get afraid that whenever there's a conference, like whether it's Amazing Parish or Parish Catalyst or Matter Conference or the one of Divine Renovation, all of these like parish renewal things. Uh, and Sherry Waddell talks about it uh, a lot with her book, Forming Intentional Disciples. She's like, I'm so nervous of intentional disciple becoming like that has a meaning, but it's going to become a buzzword. Going to want to show like like the it word absolutely already is right, right, right. Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Well, she said this years ago, but this notion of uh, like missional. Oh, we're very missional. That's very big in Protestant circles yeah. and evangelical. We're a missional church, but um, and then it was like we're missional. What does that mean? No idea. But uh, it just sounds right. And so my 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 big thing is this word rooted. I think it explains why we don't, why we're struggling as parishes so much to have a community today. Why is it that the same parish that existed a hundred years ago in St. Louis is now finding it so difficult for the last thirty years to retain a congregation younger than eighty? It's because the eighty-year-olds are—they're not going to move. 
if 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 colored people move in, people excuse me, people of color move in. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I originally I, I originally said collared people, people who wear collared shirts like yuppies. Um, <laughs> if if collared people, people who are yuppies, and people of color move in, and some people have that white flight mentality, other people who are old, they're like, no, it's my neighborhood. I'm not going anywhere. And that that thing, I, do you feel like that's your apartment building, or do you just live there? Like, like this is my neighborhood, right? No one feels, or it's so difficult to feel that way. I shouldn't say no one does. No. I mean, I'm... I'm I'm in one of those like yuppie apartment buildings that that um, was old, but now just has a bunch of young uh, professionals that are in it that don't ever interact with each other. Gentrification of the douchebag. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what's going on here. But I mean, this, this is it was um, uh, this. So I'm right by. I, like, you actually probably hear the train in the background. I'm r- right by a factory. And so I think this um, this is more blue collar gin gentrification as opposed to um, low income urban gen gentrification. Yeah. yeah, they took a factory and turned it into a apartment building, right? They- no, it's they just this was an old uh, this was an old apartment building right by a factory. But it's really cool because like these are all old. Cause, so this is a really. German Catholic area, so all of the buildings are freaking gorgeous. Because yeah. they actually say what you will about those Germans, but they know how to build buildings. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, it's just like any old Catholic culture that uh, that you know uh, believes in making things beautiful, not stupid postmodern horseshit. All right, dude, I gotta go to bed. Uh, I think. Okay, I want to. I just want to say a few things. I think this is the last thing we're gonna do. On politics for a while, right? <laughs> I don't think so, but I want it to be. <laughs> I, 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 I do want to kind of get back to the more like, um, like what's going on in our lives. How are we dealing with that? Where are we struggling? Okay. I just like. I feel like I just. I miss it. So I miss you, uh, and I think it's one of the things that, that like makes it so kick ass. But uh, I want to thank all of our listeners again. You guys are awesome. If you haven't, go and give us a like on the old Facebook.com slash Catching Foxes podcast. Facebook.com slash Catching Foxes podcast. Uh, Thank you to our sponsor for this. I mean, for some group that doesn't want us to talk about them. Thank you. Their website just happens to be Cherubomb.com, right? Uh Uh-huh. I need to do the ad for that. Dang it. I can record that. I'll I'll record the audio for that tonight if you want me to. Yes, no, maybe so. No, I'll do it. No, I'll do it. Why not? Luke, there are so many reasons why not. All right. No, I'm just kidding. I don't care. No, I mean, I won't do it. If if you want to do it, I won't do it. It's fine. I guess it's your podcast now, so that's that's totally cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am the executive director. Yeah, my ass. <laughs> that made me laugh. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you can find Luke at the Luke the. You can find me at executivedirectorpodcast.com backslash greetthoughts.gov. Adios. <laughs> the weirdest ending ever. I know, I know. I was trying to say something, think of something like really witty, and then I couldn't, and I was like. What's something that I said that pissed Luke off, but he's pretending like it's funny? <laughs> no, I'm not really mad. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really 
Gracias. <risa> <risa>